Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Jo Sharp. In our final episode for the year, we're looking back on the major themes for social protection in 2023. From adaptive social protection and climate resilience, to nutrition and displaced persons, to impact and accountability, once again it has been a big year in the field and a big year for our little show. So throughout the episode today, we'll also be playing some clips from other episodes we've aired this year. And you never know, you might be inspired to add them to your playlists as you travel for the holidays, or as many of you are hopefully enjoying a well-earned break. With me today to look back on 2023 is Rodolfo Beasley, who is an independent researcher on social protection. Welcome, Rodolfo. Thanks for having me, Joe. Let's start with the theme of adaptive social protection, which has increased in prominence in recent years with COVID, the food and fuel crisis, and of course, as we start to see increasing impacts of climate change. If we were to compare the way we were talking about adaptive or, or shock responsive social protection pre-COVID with now, what do you think has changed? How has this conversation moved on? So to begin with, the number of experiences, the number of countries implementing adaptive social protection measures, particularly in response to the pandemic, is with, without presence and it has changed the way the sector works. Then there's also the interest in adaptive social protection has shifted. A few years ago, it was a sort of a niche market. You would go and talk to governments and they would understand why they were asking social protection actors about disaster risk management or disaster risk management actors about social protection. These were two sectors that were completely independent. And also a few years ago, it used to be uh, an issue that was heavily promoted by, by donors and agents. And that has changed with them to some extent with the pandemic. Uh, and also another thing to say is that with the pandemic, we've seen a lot of innovation at, at, at the operational level. Digital payments, uh, the exchange of data sets, the use of social registries, online applications and registrations, waiving requirements, all these things that, or at least many of them, were unthinkable before the, the pandemic. And with that in mind, where do you see some of the strongest or most interesting examples of adaptive or even anticipatory social protection being developed? Where in the world are you seeing that innovation? Well, there are many, many interesting examples, I would say. Um, to begin with, the Sahel region, uh, in the Sahel, there have been many interesting developments over the years in relation to adaptive social protection. A lot of support by donors, by the World Bank, and so on. And so it has been like a sort of an innovation hub for adaptive social protection. For example, you mentioned the issue of anticipatory action. No? I mean, we have seen this only in selected countries, and the Sahel is a region in which it's exploring with anticipatory action and, and also importantly the linkage is social protection. So uh, so far, adaptive social protection has focused substantially on the responsiveness element and responsiveness of course exposed you know, after the, the shock. And yeah, the idea of anticipatory social protection is that you can provide cash or in kind support before the shock. I mean this this is interesting, but we haven't seen many examples in practice in the Sahel is, is, is one of those. But there's also has been investment in social protection as a whole, no? Let's call it regular social protection. 
in the end, if you, if you want to have a system that is adaptive and that can provide support when there is a shock, after or before the shock, then you need to have a strong social protection system. And so some of these investments that are for the core social protection, like, for example, developing registries or the capacity to exchange data, they also affect your capacity to, to respond. Then the Caribbean uh, have been a few interesting experiences, in particular linking disaster risk financing instruments with social protection. Then uh, in Southern America, the use of social registries and administrative databases to inform large-scale responses. Then some other interesting experiences are uh, in Morocco, the, the response to the pandemic was very innovative. They relied on health insurance data and they also implemented an online registration system. And with this information, they managed to implement an unemployment benefit. The same in Pakistan. Pakistan was the response that was very comprehensive. No? So there are, there are many interesting experiences. However, there is still no gold standard. It depends very much on the starting point of each country in terms of the maturity level of the social protection system, the risk profile, the disaster risk management capacity, and, and other factors. Adaptive social protection is a new policy area, and in the end, for all countries, there is still a long way to go. Dolfo, this has been a really interesting theme, which, as you say, is continuing to grow in prominence. Earlier this year, we also featured an episode on adaptive social protection that looked at some of the examples from the Caribbean, which you've just mentioned, including around linking social protection to disaster risk finance and also the Philippines, both of those exploring some of these ideas around anticipatory action. Let's hear briefly from Riyad Katkoda, who is one of our guests on that episode. I think capturing information on vulnerability is a critical step in designing effective shock response of social protection programs to ensure that these programs are actually reaching the most vulnerable populations. And it's important to include areas that they are exposed to or vulnerable to shocks and such databases that we might see missing in routine social protection databases or beneficiary registries. I think it's really a process of small building blocks. When you have a large paper-based system, you can't just move it quickly to becoming a high-end social registry. So it's all about having these small steps that you build around people and processes to develop the technology to be sustainable. Coming back to you now, Rodolfo, of course, the need to think about climate adaptation is part of what's driving this focus on adaptive social protection overall. We've historically looked at social protection as a tool for reducing poverty so I'm wondering if we're thinking instead about how social protection can be a tool for building resilience, especially in the face of a changing climate, how does that change the types of programs we might invest in or how they are designed? Or are those two goals, reducing poverty and building resilience, uh, ultimately quite similar at the end of the day? Well, these goals are not necessarily similar. I mean, this is an important question because, yeah, social protection but at least social assistance in most countries, it was designed to, to reduce poverty, to provide life cycle support, and so on. No? With adaptive social protection, in recent years, we have been focusing on the use of social protection to respond to shocks. But the, the element of uh, adaptive social protection that is about building resilience, enhancing adaptiveness, and so on, that hasn't been explored and developed as the responsiveness element. Um, and it's, of course, very important, particularly in terms of climate change. No? 
And yes, I mean, this would imply going even beyond cash-transfer programs. No? And we were asking about other programs, and this will include economic inclusion programs, the livelihood diversification, skills development, financial inclusion, microinsurance, and programs that, that, that promote uh, land use and, and conservation behaviors, public works, for example, that improve land and water availability, like there are some of these examples in India and Ethiopia. So a number of different programs that push the boundaries of social protection quite a bit. You also nominated the interoperability of information systems for social protection as a key theme. What advances have we seen in the field of interoperability this year? Well, stemming from the, the pandemic, there's an increased interest in the use of existing databases to target households in need of support. In the pandemic, the scale of the crisis was huge. And because of the characteristics of the crisis, the mobility restrictions and all that, the lockdowns, basically, then the traditional ways of collecting data, assessing needs and damage and so on, weren't feasible. No? And so in the end, many governments rely on existing data and they have to exchange data. No? And, and most of them, or many of them, weren't prepared. So in the end, interoperability is about creating systems that exchange data regularly uh, in, a, in a way that is that ensures privacy and security and so on. No? And this also, the interest in interoperability implies a shift also in the way social registries are seen. Social registries, which basically contain information of people who, who may be eligible for social protection programs, they traditionally collected information on a census type of approach, a census-based approach, no? which is costly. And in theory, they say that they would implement it every three, four years, but in practice, it gets delayed um, because it's costly, but it's complex. And so, so now there is a shift in the way social registries are seen, and they are, the data collection that is proposed by many experts and by many governments is relying on multiple strategies. No? And one of those is relying on existing data. So basically exchanging data rather than collecting data again. And for this, uh, you need to have the interoperable system. The problem is, of course, in order to be effective and efficient, the data that you have access to has to be of good quality, has to be available, has to be relevant to your policy objectives. A number of issues that are not, uh, are not present in many cases. So the idea, the idea of changing data and relying on the data that is already in some of the databases makes a lot of sense. However, there are also a, a number of risks. Perhaps speaking then to one of those risks, we featured an episode earlier this year that looked at issues around accountability in social protection. Uh, one of the broad critiques is that social protection systems can be a little bit of a black box and it can be particularly difficult for recipients to peer inside, understand how to access benefits or seek help if things seem to be going wrong. Of course, we're interested in developing these interoperable systems for reasons of efficiency, and that's really important. But is there a risk that they also become harder to understand? Here's what my guest Suchi Pandey had to say in our episode about holding social protection systems to account. So just to set this up, uh, at this moment in the episode, we had just been listening to a researcher working in Somalia 
describing the range of challenges recipients of social protection and humanitarian cash programs had had when they had tried to access feedback and complaints mechanisms. Suchi, let me come to you first. This is a fundamental problem, isn't it? If it's up to these most vulnerable people to be claiming their rights and making these complaints and seeking accountability from the far more powerful state. Absolutely. The onus of claiming rights often is on the most vulnerable populations. And as she rightly points out, many of the hotlines and feedback mechanisms exist on paper. They're either not widely publicized, fail to provide information that communities need, as she points out, or are not accessible for a range of reasons. Either people don't can't physically access them, or as she points out, they're context blind. They don't take into account the different dialects that a particular region might have. And these complaints then are not redirected to an appropriate authority when received, and as a result, they're ignored. So while high-level commitment and resources are necessary to have complaint system feedback mechanisms in place, often appropriate accompanying motivations to effectively respond to complaint, analyze complaint patterns, and most importantly, prevent future complaints are rare. And then there is a risk of reprisals for complainants. Because oftentimes when people complain, they do so at high personal risk. And the way that this risk manifests itself is in two ways. Mobilization of socially powerful groups that risk the loss of status or power. And then they organize to suppress complainants. And another is the weak commitment to protect the anonymity of a complainant. So, Rodolfo, what do you think? How can we put accountability and responsiveness at the heart of social protection system design? The issue of accountability is always a key one in social protection, of course. In terms of, for example, interoperability that we were just discussing, I mean, there's a huge risk here. Uh, and, and we have seen this in some countries. For example, I, I conducted some research in Peru, and the response to the pandemic was quite good, was fairly tiny, large scale, but there were many complaints about the lack of transparency in the eligibility uh, uh, criteria. No? So basically, the problem was that they relied on as many databases as they could find. And then for the population, it was impossible to understand why they were selected or not, basically, because they couldn't even tell the, the source of information. No? And again, many of these databases are outdated and so on. And they have a number of, of data quality issues. So it is a black box, and the risk is that it could be an even darker box. Of course, it makes sense to leverage information that is already available, but we have to develop accountability mechanisms because otherwise it's going to be it's going to be a problem for the transparency of the sector. So, what do you think these mechanisms could look like or should look like? I mean, it's a difficult question. Part of the problem, I think, is that. Accountability also comes from upstream, no? And so it's not just about what is what mechanism should be in place. I mean, we can think about many mechanisms, and we can use technology or traditional mechanisms and so on, and we can be very creative about that. About that. But then the problem is that if the program leaders or the, or the ministry or whoever is upstream doesn't have the right incentives and it doesn't promote this accountability, then that's going to be a problem. So I think it's more about the incentives and accountability upstream than the mechanism itself that I'm sure we can develop effective mechanisms if the incentives are the right ones. 
Thank you. And of course, this is a challenge that's not limited to developing countries either. Another focus we've had on the podcast this year has been social protection, nutrition and food security. We had an episode on school feeding earlier this year, and we've talked about hunger and nutrition are likely to be significant themes for the G20 in the coming year as Brazil assumes the presidency. Here's Daniel Balaban talking about what other countries could learn from Brazil's experience with homegrown school feeding programs, for example. Daniel, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. I think it's the G20. We associate that with globalisation. And here, of course, we're really talking about localization. What do finance ministers and governments need to understand about this as we face these economic and climate crises? Well, Joe, in my opinion, it's becoming increasingly difficult to clearly define what is local and what is global. So uh, limits between the two are more and more fluid. We are facing a multiple crisis involving climate change, air pollution, biodiversity loss, war among nations, and enduring burdens of the pandemic and death, sadly, developing countries as well as undernourishment and hunger. Above all, what we need is a change in our mindsets. We should have political will and understand that the money that is spent to end hunger by 2030 is a mere fraction of what countries spend on weapons. Just for you to understand, the world spent last year more than $2 trillion and $200 billion in military. Just for comparison, the whole WFP budget expected for this year is around 10 billion. It's next to 0.45% of military expenditures to try to save lives and bring food to more than 150 million people around the world every day. So, Joe, uh, the world needs to rethink its priorities and Brazil could bring this renewed view to the G20. Rodolfo, we also highlighted a particular dialogue in Brazil earlier this year about multi-sectoral approaches to human capital development with a focus on nutrition. I think you actually spoke at that event. How do you see the thinking about the contribution of social protection to nutrition outcomes, particularly changing over time? Thanks, Joe. Well, yes, in fact, I, I participated in this uh, high-level dialogue in Brazil, and in this event, we discussed what many issues, but two of them, two of the most important ones. On the one hand, the use of school feeding programs to respond to shocks. And the other one was the role of school feeding to support food security and nutrition. And when we talk about nutrition, we focused on not only on undernutrition, but also on overweight and obesity, so malnutrition. And what was discussed was mostly about the role of social protection in terms of enhancing access to food, of ensuring stability. And here, we go back to the issue of adaptive social protection, no? protecting people against shock. And to a lesser extent, the role of social protection in, in, in contributing to availability of food, utilization of food, including diversity and, and so on. So in the event, we discussed with a, a great level of, of detail these different pathways in which social protection could. Uh, contribute to, to nutrition outcomes. 
One of our most popular episodes this year was a wide-ranging discussion about social protection impact, and that was, you know, the state of the evidence, what do we know about what social protection can do and can support? Where do you see the most significant impacts in social protection, you know, of all of the kind of research and evidence that has come out over recent years and decades? You know, what are the killer facts for you? Well, there is a lot of research about social protection, so this is, this is good. I would say that one of the, this strong body of evidence in terms of the role of social protection, reducing poverty and helping populations cope with shocks, supporting livelihoods, enabling access to health and education, other of these, I would say, core outcomes. Then there is increasing uh, research on other dimensions, although more is needed, but in terms of uh, gender, in terms of violence, in terms of uh, intersectionality, in terms of nutrition, that we're just talking about that, these other outcomes are more recent, or at least the research on these outcomes is more recent, and we still need to understand better how social protection contributes to them. But there is already some uh, exciting evidence. So let me uh, highlight a paper research that has just been published. I think it's, it summarizes a lot of research that it's a paper by Banerjee and others. Basically, what they do is it's a review of the design impact of many social protection programs and of different aspects, different dimensions of these social protection programs. And it summarizes a lot of the evidence that I think that's super interesting. And while we're talking about evidence and impact, I thought I might mention our three-part series that we produced earlier this year on social protection and gender-based violence, which really looked at what we know about the possible impact pathways for how social protection might work to reduce or mitigate violence. Here's my guest, Lusajo Kajula, speaking about her research on how a social protection program in Tanzania appeared to work to mitigate violence against children and young people. For four years, we conducted a study with adolescents in two regions in southern highlands of Tanzania from four districts. And these adolescents, 14 to 19, were trained in financial literacy, in gender, violence, social, sexual reproductive health. So for those who were out of school, they engaged in different forms of not only business, somewhere into livestock keeping, actually some conducted businesses and those in school would decide whether to buy school material, some wanted to learn vocational training and then every year we, we would assess them, we conduct surveys and qualitative interviews to see the improvement. So for girls, in some cases with low socioeconomic status, some girls would engage in sexual, you know, transfer with uh, either promise of cash or with cash, or sometimes just promises to get a better life. Also, when they engaged in cash transfer program, they were trained to and also got a grant to start program to start any business, but also they were trained in financial literacy, which actually more girls could then stay in school, uh, reduce the probability of being pregnant. For the boys, some of them, you know, instead of going to school, they'd work in farms or sometimes in, for example, in one district in Mofindi, go to wood cutting factories so that they can get the extra cash. So being in a social protection programs, 
can protect them, actually help protect them to stay longer in schools. Also in terms of gender, the boys, if they have more gender equitable attitudes, that's the world we wish for, you know, for adult male to have more gender equitable attitudes and therefore be less violent to their wives and children. This is one of those areas where there's been really a lot of research over recent years, quite a new area of study, so that we can say now with some confidence that cash transfers generally do have a positive or neutral impact on gender-based violence rather than contributing to it, which I think has long been the fear. But equally, there's work to do to understand the nuances of this. So in those episodes we talked about, some studies that raise concerns about public works programs where women are moving into the workforce, which may challenge local gender dynamics and relationships. And this is actually quite a mixed picture and something that really needs to be understood more. So just an example of why the investment in this kind of evidence base is so important. Rodolfo, beyond those big themes that we've just discussed, what else happened in the field of social protection in 2023 that you think deserves more attention? Yeah, it's what deserves more attention. I would I would say the use of social protection to support migrants, refugees, internally displaced population. I mean, we are aware of the barriers that refugees and IDPs face to accessing social protection in, in many countries. For example, uh, in in Colombia, particularly in response to the, the Venezuelan crisis, there is a lot of interesting research about uh, how the government provided social protection support to, to refugees and migrants in Greece, in Cameroon, in Mozambique, no? also in the, in the Caribbean. So this is, this is a, an important uh, issue that, that is increasingly researched, but uh, I think and I hope that there's going to be even more research in the coming years. Yes, I agree. There have been some really interesting work coming out on this topic this year. We also featured an episode that looked particularly at social protection for children and families of refugees. And what really stood out to me in that episode was, of course, that many of these host countries don't have established safety net systems themselves. Let's hear from my guest, Nupur Kukreti, on this issue. Often where displaced populations move to tend to be locations or countries that do not have adequate quality and coverage of basic services in the first place, which means that these services are already quite stretched. So an influx of displaced and migrant populations affects the carrying capacity of these services and you know, leads to stretching them further. This impacts host populations and host children, especially those who are poor, vulnerable, and have limited voice in terms of changing the way the whole system works. Therefore, I think it's important uh, that programs aimed at supporting children also support children that are displaced and migrants, also support vulnerable and poor children in the host community, so that we're giving a fair chance in life to all children, regardless of their status. Rodolfo, for my next question, I wanted to ask you, what are three of the most interesting or important publications you've read this year that you'd like to share with listeners? So in terms of impact, we're talking about the impact of social protection. There's a paper by the World Bank, by Gaga and other co-authors, which assesses the impact of public programs. And the finding in the end is that impact on earnings 
uh, it tends to be quite small, no? And it doesn't last the same in terms of the employment. And here there has been a lot of discussions about public programs over the years, no? And there are a lot of claims about what these programs can achieve, but also a lot of doubts about the results in practice. I think the end this paper uh, contributes to the debate by showing that as we kind of knew, there are many challenges in terms of longer term uh, outcomes. Then we are talking about adaptive social protection. And I think there is a paper by Barca and O'Brien. What they do is basically they identify ways in which social protection actors can work alongside uh, disaster risk management actors and humanitarian actors. This in the end is super important because adaptive social protection is still heavily focused on social protection. But in practice, if it's not broader and multisectoral, it's not going to work. And then in terms of migration, uh, refugees and IDPs, there's an ODI paper by Lowe and others. Uh, basically, what they do is they propose ways of adjusting social protection delivery to support displaced population. I think that's an interesting contribution to, to the debate and to the practice. Rodolfo, at the end of the year, we always like to ask guests this question, which is, what are your New Year's resolutions for social protection in the year 2024? Okay, so in terms of my resolutions, I would say that also stemming from the, the pandemic, the role of grassroots organisations delivering, particularly in-kind support, has been crucial, particularly during the pandemic. No? And there is literature on localization, and, and there's also a focus on the last or the first mile, no? and they cover this to some extent. But I think that there is yeah, the more research is needed, and, and I'm quite interested in that. And I, I hope I can find uh, time to, to focus a bit on, on the role of, of grassroots organizations providing support and the linkages with national social protection systems. Then, in terms of adaptive social protection, I would say that I would like uh, going beyond social protection, beyond cash, and beyond responsiveness. We claim that adaptive social protection is more than social protection, more than cash, and more than responsiveness. But so far, we have focused a lot on this, on these issues. No, so I hope that in 2024 we can go even further. And then another resolution, let's say. I'm always interested in the issue of the political economy issues behind social protection, the foundations of social protection. And so on the one hand, we've been focusing a lot on certain challenges, no? like uh, increasing polarization in countries, increasing uncertainty, fiscal constraint, long-standing issues like poverty and inequality. And on the other hand, there are some possible goals like uh, increasing coverage, or universal basic income, adequacy, comprehensiveness, readiness, no? But in a context of increasing polarization, uncertainty, of fiscal constraints, implementing these ideas, it requires a strong social context, no? And in the end, these political economy issues behind social protection are very, very important. And at least in my case, sometimes we tend to focus quite heavily on the operations, no? On the implementation programs, and it's important not to forget about the important foundations behind the system. Rodolfo Beasley, thank you so much for making time to join us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Joe. 
Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guests to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Joining us for Quick Wins today is Roberta Brito, who is a researcher for socialprotection.org. Welcome, Roberta. Thanks for having me. Socialprotection.org, as listeners well know, is of course the platform that hosts this podcast. It's also a huge repository of knowledge on all things social protection, hosting weekly webinars, courses, conferences, and more. And in October this year, the platform launched its first edition of the Social Protection Digest which is a hand-picked compilation of recent research and practice designed to help you keep up with what's new in the field. The Digest comes out quarterly and the next one will drop on the 19th of December. Roberta, why did socialprotection.org decide to add this Digest product to its existing range of products? There have been uh, different motivations behind the creation of this Digest. Social protection is such a dynamic field with ongoing developments, emerging trends and evolving best practices. And we experience that our members and users struggle navigating the vast amount of information available on the platform. The Digest serves as a response, seeking to condense key information into a manageable format, making it easier for users to stay informed about some of the most recent insights and innovations. Also, as you mentioned, socialprotection.org was initially conceived as a content repository and has since evolved into a dynamic platform, expanding its services to include webinars, online courses, events, conferences, and even a podcast. So the platform is always open to innovate. And in an era where information overload is a common challenge, our aim is to contribute by curating and presenting information in a digestible manner for our members and users. And we hope to add more products like the Digest to our range of products in the near future. Thanks, Roberta. So in this segment, we talk about highlighting things that have sparked our interest or sparked the interest of our guests. How do you and the team choose what to include in the digest? As you said, there's a lot of information coming out every month, a lot for people to process. Choosing what to include in the Social Protection Digest involves reading through hundreds of publications that have been submitted to the platform by the team and by members. Throughout the creation process, we keep some considerations in mind to ensure that the selected materials are relevant, impactful, and represent some level of innovation within the current state of social protection knowledge and practice. Let me mention some of the considerations. First of all, we try to ensure the selected content aligns with the main goal of the platform, which is to be an unbranded knowledge sharing and capacity strengthening platform that offers actionable content and promotes dialogue, learning, and cooperation among the global social protection community through innovative formats with a focus on low and middle income countries. So to achieve these, we actively select content on diverse topics and from different sources as to cater to the varied interests and needs of our audience. We also try to ensure that the content selected reflects experiences and knowledge that are applicable to low and middle income countries. Secondly, we try to think of what is relevant and useful to the Digest's target groups, 
who are social protection practitioners, policy makers, and researchers. Therefore, we structure the selected resources into practitioner guides, providing hands-on advice for those in the field, studies that bring evidence backed by solid research, and conceptual discussions that have policy implications. And thirdly, we do keep an eye for emerging trends and innovations within the field of social protection, so the digest can be at the forefront of knowledge dissemination. So can you give us a sneak peek of what's coming up in this next current edition? What's one of the resources that you'd like to highlight? So one of the papers we'll be highlighting is called Ensuring an Effective Social Protection Response in Conflict-Affected Settings, Findings from the Horn of Africa. It was written by Izzy Birch, Becky Carter, Jeremy Lind, and Rachel sabates Wheeler. The paper makes recommendations to how social protection and conflict can be better integrated, drawing from case studies conducted in Kenya, Somalia, and Sudan. One of the most interesting issues that the paper touches on is what development partners can do to make social protection programs and systems more conflict-sensitive, conflict-responsive, and conflict-transformative. Conflict sensitivity and responsiveness would, for example, mean that programs are sufficiently resilient to be maintained during and after conflict, and that social protection can be mobilized to respond to additional needs created by the conflict. While uh, conflict transformative refers to social protection measures that aim to address power imbalances that create vulnerabilities and inequality in society and hence perpetuates conflict. Thank you. Why did you think that that would be of particular interest to the socialprotection.org membership? Through our webinars, e-courses, and our annual satisfaction survey, we always ask our members what are the topics that are interesting them at the moment. And the interaction between social protection and conflict is one of the topics that a lot of people highlight. Thanks, Roberta. If listeners haven't already listened to our episode about children on the move, which was about providing social protection for displaced populations in host countries, I encourage people to go back into the archives and check that one out. And of course, we'll put a link to the latest edition of the Social Protection Digest and that paper that Roberta mentioned in the episode description. I hope listeners will put it on their holiday reading lists. Roberta, thank you so much for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Jill. Before we end the show for the year, I wanted you to hear from the team at socialprotection.org that made this podcast possible in 2023. The socialprotection.org platform, as you've just heard, is a prolific repository of knowledge on social protection run by a fantastic and dedicated group of people who wear many hats, turning out webinars, courses, publications, and, of course, podcasts. I am Marina Carvalho, Knowledge Management Analyst at the socialprotection.org platform. My role involves operational coordination of the platform's teams, including the podcast team. And I really appreciate your audience and look forward to seeing you next year. My name is Fabiana Pullen, and I'm one of the people who helped coordinate the podcast team at socialprotection.org. Hi, everyone. My name is Manuel Salles, and I'm a focal point for the Social Protection Podcast. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Paula Sakabi. I'm a knowledge management assistant here at socialprotection.org, and I help record and edit the podcast. Happy holidays. Hi, everyone. I'm João Pedro Gregorindis. I'm a researcher at socialprotection.org, and for the podcast, I'll do the background research. Hello, everyone. I'm Gabriel Mazaru, and together with Paula, Juan, Mando, and all the team, I helped to edit the episodes and produce the podcasts at socialprotection.org. Thank you also to Mariana Balboni, who is the platform's coordinator and senior project officer. From our communications and graphic design team, we have Ligia Batista, Lidiane Feria, Priscilla Minari, and Flavia Faria. Krista Alvarenga is a research analyst. Carol Ventarelli does our final edit and mix. And our friends Larissa Toluso and Karini Farina also worked with the podcast team this year. And finally, thank you for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of, you heard it, socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcast or Spotify. And we are so grateful when you leave a review. We will be back next year. Happy holidays. See you then.